This podcast, number 786 with Richard Moss, is brought to you by author Doug Holliday, the author of a new book entitled Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning and Work in Life. Please join Doug and Greg on podcast number 785, where they discuss the illusion we have around success and how our personal stories frequently hold us back from achieving the success we deserve. Our story is the central show in living a life of meaning, and it is so important that we awaken to what we are doing emotionally that colors our world with either happiness or despair. Please listen to this deep and engaging dialogue about how the eight practices can lift us to new heights in finding more meaning in our work and life. If you want to learn more about Doug Holiday, please go to www.dougholiday.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy this inspiring podcast about rethinking success. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Richard, as I do every time I come on one of these shows, I thank the listeners. Uh, almost 15 years of doing podcasts, almost 800 podcasts been done with authors. And we have a returning guest. And his name is Dr. Richard Moss. And Richard is joining us from Boulder, Colorado. We're going to kind of do an interesting interview because there's an interview on my show, Inside Personal Growth, about the mandala of being. But now that COVID has come around, uh, Richard and I thought it would be a great way to revisit and actually talk with Richard about some of the things that he's now doing uh, since the last time this book released. I also had the beauty of finding a book called The Black Butterfly, An Invitation to Radical Aliveness that he wrote many years ago prior to the mandala of being. So we're going to kind of blend this interview. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the programs that Richard is doing and is offering to you. But Richard, I'm going to let him know a little bit about you. Uh Richard was a practicing physician when he experienced a spontaneous state of illumination that irreversibly changed his life and profoundly transformed his understanding of human consciousness and behavior. Um, With this opening came a new level of sensibility, including a heightened intuition, subtle insight into mystical and spiritual teachings, and the ability to sense human body energy fields. And this really propelled Richard to start writing these books. He never returned to medicine, but he then had been a loving physician and eventually a few of his former patients hooked up with him and began counseling with him at his home. And he's been doing coaching and this, and he has a website that you should go to, which is richardmoss.com. He's the author of seven books, which we will actually mention in our blog entry. And he has a bachelor from the State of University of New York at Stony Brook uh, and an MD from the New York Medical College. And his credentials go on and on and on. And I think that you can look that up at his website to learn more about him. But Richard, I think just kind of diving in here, because both of your books in particular, the ones that I've done and the one that I recently received, Black Butterfly, which is people can still get it if they go to Amazon. I got one. Uh, it's not in print anymore. But in the mandala of being, you speak about what you refer to as radical awareness. Um, what is radical awareness and how would you 
advise our listeners about creating either activities in their lives or things where they can attain this new mind-body experience and in this place and stay in this place of now. I think, you know, we look at Eckhart Tolle, talks a lot about now, a lot of people out there. But what is it that we have to become, Richard, to actually have this radical awareness? Okay, well, hi, Greg. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, I think people need to understand not only was I a doctor, but for now 45 years, and we don't want to give away just how old I am, but in my 70s, um, I've been working with people, leading retreats um, about transformation and development of consciousness. And, um, 45 years. Anyway, you ask you ask a question that on one level is exceptionally easy, another level is not. But I think I think everyone in our audience understands and has had the experience. Um, here I am in Boulder, and while I don't ski as much as I used to, I certainly understood from when I was a younger man—I mean, really younger—and was surfing and skiing. That there are moments when you're doing those kinds of activities where you stop thinking and you're doing something, but there's no doer. And you feel like as if the environment, the surfboard, the waves, the wind, or the skis and the snow and the trees and the it, 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 it you just sort of disappear into almost a state of oneness, and it's typically called flow. But imagine if that state actually those visitations to those states could become something that you live more and more consistently. Um, in other words, you're, you're going not just to the kind of consciousness all of us must develop as we evolve from babies that are that don't know inside from outside or me from you or that don't have language. And then our parents give us give us uh, because they have language, because they are egos or what I would think you would better understand is a separate self-awareness. We develop separate self-awareness and we start living in past and future and in the beliefs and judgments we have about ourselves and anything whatsoever the mind can name and think about. And they're off and running. We're lost in our thinking, lost in our minds. And that part of consciousness is never actually present. It gives us tremendous survival value. It has for tens, hundreds of thousands of years because we can anticipate the future and prepare, because we can learn from the past. But the problem is we become the victims of our thinking. We become the victims of our beliefs, the victims of our judgments. Nobody is born of any particular religion. Nobody is born of any particular nationality. All of that's enculturated and trained. And then once you believe that, once your identity comes from that, you... you and that's where you know that's where ninety nine point nine percent of humanity is, except when they're skiing, except when they disappear into dancing, or or in the the, the most beautiful moments of lovemaking, or when you're singing. Um, then all of a sudden you find, oh wait, there's a deeper aliveness. Suddenly you realize what the poets have said that there are no borders in nature, and and you're not bordered by your mind. You're not the victim of your thinking. You're not the victim of your training and conditioning. And that's radical. That, that radical literally, it's not the political notion of radical, uh, which is kind of nonsense. It's actually to come back to the root or the source. 
That's what the word actually means, to come back to the root or the source of awareness. Now, the awareness we're talking about is in the now, but the now is just an abstraction. And so is words like the self with a capital L. But that's why I, I just listed these kinds of experiences I think everybody has known. Now, those are just tastes. There is a living process, a path that we can begin to understand, and this is what I've taught for, as I said, 45 years, and that's what I help people with. It, it's, not, it's not that I'm interested in having people have realization and waking. I'm, I'm interested in people bringing the depth of their being into how they live their lives um, and what they choose, because literally we don't have any hope as a species if we stay in this kind of split, separate self-consciousness. And because fear drives that consciousness so much, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, whereas right, the experience right. where it, yeah. So I'll stop. I'll stop there, and you can jump in. No, and I now. think I think that 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 the point you make is, you know, you were doing this before a lot of people were doing it. Let's face it. There's been ways people now are talking about how do we hack flow. Stephen Kotler's been on this show six times. Wrote the book. Uh, the rise of Superman, abundance, bold, all kinds of things. But you know, it, 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 we go back to the days. Forgive of me for saying it, but it's nonsense. Like, Superman would have the most I profound know, but, humility. No, nobody, nobody just takes flow and lives in that all the time and thinks they're Superman. No, I but, get it. And but that's I haven't what read I'm his saying. book. <laughs> you've been working in the yeah, but you've been but you've been working in this area of of altered states of consciousness, because that's in essence what happens. And I want, you know, you write about and you tell a story about how you were addressing a group and trying to share your insights about where the mind goes when it leaves the presence, the present. And I want you to tell the story about how you developed the mandala model, which is in the mandala of being book, uh, which helps people to stay in the present. And I think the awareness you call it radical awareness or radical aliveness, but the one of the first stages is that we've got to be aware. And when we're unaware, what's happening, Richard, is we're going down this path and that path and this path. And like you said, we're cha- that monkey mind's got us going in circles. So tell that story and give our listeners an idea how we could stay more present. Well, okay. Um, I am. I've been teaching for. <laughs> At the point where I developed the mandala, which was in the early 90s, or first came upon that, I'd been teaching for since since the late 70s. And suddenly I'm, I, of course, I'd been teaching about subject-object consciousness, about the me, you, mine, yours, you know, kind of consciousness that divides the whole world. And I've been teaching about time, about how when the mind is in the past, we either have we either have positive remembrance or negative remembrance, and then we throw that same understanding from the past into the future, and we have hope if we can, when we imagine certain positive things, and fear if we imagine, you know, repeats of the past that are as bad or worse than the past. So that's, that's all, that's, that's basically what I had been teaching about, but suddenly what was really, really happening in my life is there I am sitting day after day, week after week, month after month in retreats and in teaching and guiding people. But I go home and I'm having trouble with my marriage. I go home and I'm having arguments with my wife. I, get, I go home 
And all the basic problems that people have in relationships are there. And I find myself divided in my mind. I find myself judgmental. I find myself irritable and angry and self-important and self-righteous. And I got to thinking about it. I sat down. I literally made it. I said, what am I doing differently than when I'm in this deep, embodied, now moment quality of attention when I'm working with people in my work where I don't get reactive? where I don't get defensive. Uh, What am I doing differently when I go home? And that's when I began to understand. And so as the understanding dawned on me, there came a specific moment that you're alluding to from the book where I am working with a group of people and I have a carpet that I brought back from Nepal in 1982 with a big, it's a beautiful, beautiful carpet. And in the center is a mandala. And it's about a meter across this mandala. And what the word mandala means is circle, literally. It's a Sanskrit word for, and it means circle. But it's also a form of um, transformational art. And people have seen all kinds of mandalas. Um, the mandalas in nature are like sunflowers with the dark center and the petals and bright orange going in every direction. Um, and so what mandalas are is they are circles that depict the journey of transformation. They're strongly oriented to a center place. And then basically they have four basic directions. And so I'm standing on my mandala in in the meeting room at my retreat facility at the time. And I stand in the center and I say, this is the present moment, the now. In the now we are aware, but we don't think. Um, Thinking then becomes a different function in the now. In the now we feel, we have sensation. We, we know pain and pleasure and love, but we're not creating any kind of emotion from our thinking. So then, then I stepped over to a position, and if you looked at a clock and you imagined uh, 9 o'clock on the clock, I stepped over to the 9 o'clock position and I said, now this is when we're inside of our beliefs about ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I'm better than this person. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough, you know. I have to try harder. All those kinds of stories that arouse, you know, either grandiosity because we're better or or a kind of depressiveness and smallness because we see ourselves as less good. And so I step there to the nine o'clock position and then I go over to three o'clock and I say, now, if nine o'clock is about you and about yourself, three o'clock is about everybody else. It's about your mother and your father. It's the stories you tell about your wife and your children. They don't listen to me or she doesn't care enough about me or he is so self-involved and he's he's too caught up in his business or he doesn't love me or they, Republicans, or they, Democrats, do this and do that and all those thoughts, one after another after another, about everything, including God, including money. So I'm there in the three o'clock position. I'm saying this is when the mind is in the you stories. Over there at 9 o'clock was me. Over here at 3 o'clock is you. And then I say, and, and if you step right into the center, right back to the center, those stories stop. And you look at how people are murdering themselves and each other with their thoughts and you have, you know, about others, about themselves. And you have compassion and humility for, for, humility for your own misery that you create with your mind, compassion for the misery everybody else is creating in themselves for their mind. And then I go over to the six o'clock position and I say, now this is the mind in the past. 
The past is this deep ground of memory, but in the past we have we always find the basis to justify our reactions in the present moment. We don't react just because of what's happening in the present moment. We react because we compare it to something that happened in the past. So sometimes what happened in the past is wonderful and we hope you know, and, and and that gives us a positive feeling and a positive way of relating to something in the present. But often things in the past were were were, were not positive. And in fact, we select for the memories in the past that justify our negative feelings and our reactions. So that's the past at six o'clock. And then I walk over to 12 o'clock and I say, and this is the future. And in fact, human beings at this level of me and you and past don't have a future. They just imagine a past that could be worse in the future or a past that could be better in the future. So there's no actual future, but there's hope and there's fear. If it's better, we'll have hope. And if it's worse, we'll have fear and worry and anxiety and all of that, which is happening right now so much during the COVID-19 pandemic because everything's uncertain. And uncertainty breeds fear, uh, except when you're standing in the center. And then you know that you've lived through thousands of things every day you implicitly have a sense of trust about the future. You implicitly and deeply have a sense of forgiveness about the past. You're no longer the victim of anything that ever previously happened to you. And so that's how the mandala was born. It's a mandala of consciousness. My friend Robert Diltz, one of the co-founders, the co-founder of, of NLP, calls it the single best tool ever developed for coaching at the level of identity. That is for challenging the identity that is causing you to either suffer or create suffering in others. And there's so many levels of identity. Well, and I think having a model, Richard, for people, uh, because there's a foundation around a model, there's a diagram in the book that people can refer to. Um, it kind of gives them, it's almost like having a compass, right? And exactly. I think- People like that because the uncertainty in life that we're talking about, and we're going to talk about this COVID, you know, during these times of uncertainty because of COVID, a lot of people have reverted back to survival mode. Well, that is on your mandala, right? If you're not in the center, you're maybe in one of those other points. But you mentioned that because survival is at the root of the false self, Right, we just talked about the fear that it's not true God or or whatever it is that people have beliefs in. And because being in the now, sitting in the center, when you're in that position, you are just yourself. You're just it, it isn't about control because what people are trying to do is control something that's uncontrollable. They almost have to surrender to the fact that it's there. So what advice do you have for the person listening today? who is fearful and anxious and in a survival mode and is challenged about getting into the center of your mandala in the bent in the center. They don't know how to move from one of those spots on the compass, North, South, East, West to stay in the center and stay centered and stay in the now and have the fear of the now. What would you, what advice would you have for them? Well, well it's understandable when the let's say suddenly you're a self-employed person and and or, or you know or you lose your job and you're staying at home and you don't know what your income is going to be, of course there's fear and anxiety. So, but 
But if you haven't been practicing on, on some kind of a path that brings you back into your body, brings you back to your breath, brings you back to a relationship with your feelings, a relationship, an awareness of your feelings, so that you can hold them in a creative and a generative way instead of be the victim of fear or the victim of hope, because hope is a beautiful thing, but it's usually false hope. It's based on some kind of fantasy. And most of the things that make us afraid, almost everything that makes us afraid, is mind-made. It's, I mean, obviously, fear was in the evolution of human beings. It's our first teacher of survival. You need to be afraid of the saber-toothed tiger. You, you need to be afraid of the poisonous snake. You need to be afraid of the quicksand. You need to be afraid that there won't be enough food to get through a difficult winter. You need to be afraid so that you will take proper action. So that's, nothing's changed, not in hundreds of thousands of years of human, you know, human, human life. When there's uncertainty, when there's unpredictability, when there's an actual threat like the saber-toothed tiger, we're afraid. But when you tell yourself a story, I won't be loved, and you get afraid, that's your mind. Those, when, when you tell yourself a story, my life will never work again, that's your mind. When you tell yourself a story, the government's taking my, my, away my freedom because they're making me wear a mask, that's your mind. Hate is created by the mind. Fear, most, 99% of it, is created by the mind. So you have to recognize, what am I telling myself right now that's making me afraid? Now, some of it's realistic. Things about staying home, things about social distancing or physical distancing, things about protecting others by wearing a mask and, and expecting them, likewise, to protect you by wearing a mask. Anything you can... What I always do, what I always teach and live is first, if there's fear, what is it that fear is asking me to do? What is it telling me I'm not prepared about yet? And then I look and I say, okay, I can do this and this and this, because those things are within my power. Now, some of those things are actual actions, like some of my clients that have, are CEOs and they have been having to make difficult decisions to lay off some people, to furlough some people, to promise who they will bring back if they can bring them back after this. I, and I'm, I'm guiding them in their inner journey with that as well as you know, their inner journey in their personal lives because you never, ever can separate your personal life from your professional life, ever. If you do, your pre professional life will, will suffer and your personal life will suffer because life is one deeply lived place inside of healthy people, inside of developed people. So... The, the, the statement is that fear is understandable, but fear is also a sensation. When you're in the center mm -hmm. it's not, of the mandala, you're not just without fear, but you're in a relationship with fear. I can hold fear. I can touch fear very, very gently. I, I say to people, imagine your attention. Your, it's like a soft, soft feather. And instead of saying, fear, I'm going to get rid of you, go away. Anger, I'm going to get rid of you, go away which are violent relationships to these emotions and sensations, which only make them stronger. Um, you, you, you touch them yeah, softly. You hold them with your breath. You hold them gently. And this is a practice. It's a practice you do day after day after day. And, and there's more. We'll talk about more. There are many other practices that if you do them, fear becomes less powerful in you. But most people are unprepared for what's happening now, and they're unprepared for the kind of uncertainty.
the fear that uncertainty brings. And and of course they're they're floundering. And the other thing you didn't mention is that some people are responding with incredible generosity and love exactly. and creativity. Exactly. And it's bringing out the best of right. us, but it'll also bring out the worst of us. And that's that's the challenge. Well, and I think that comes down to Richard. Uh, you know, understanding this oneness. And let's talk about that for a second, because in your chapter on the power of awareness. You stated that the great Indian sage Ramananda Maharishi said that if we want to know our true selves, we must go back to the way that we've come. That our original state of consciousness in childhood is not one of being separate entity with our own thoughts and sensations. And this is what you were just explaining. Look, as we grow older, we start to build these these social norms that we've got to adhere to, or somebody wants us to become something, or we're not enough. When we're a child, that didn't exist. Why, in your estimation, do we lose this wonder of childhood? And how is one of the best ways to return to that state of wonderment, which would be that state of, hey, this isn't part of my consciousness, because this is what we've got to actually uh, eliminate or at least reduce. What what thoughts do you have for our listeners on that to return to that state? Well, well, you return to it in a certain sense. Children are born, as you said, they don't know inside from outside. They don't know me from you, up or down. So they're in a state of oneness. And one of the interesting things about that is that the right brain in children is more developed than the left brain. And initially, when we start to learn language, and it's when we start to learn language that we begin to create differentiation and separation, and uh, but which is part of it, we need to learn these things. A baby can't survive. Imagine if you have a, div- a, a, div- a genetic problem with a child and they don't develop properly, and they do live to be 10 or 15 or 20 years old, rarely, or even... But you have to change their diaper all their lives, and you have to feed them all their lives and because they're still babies. They may be in a state of oneness. They may radiate a state of love, but they're helpless. And so the the first thing, and I call it the first miracle. I have a book that's called The Second Miracle, but the first miracle is creating me, the ego, the separate self. All 7.5 billion people on the planet today went through that development. Now, if you stop there, you spend the rest of your life in me, the separate self who lives in the past, and then the fear that's projected out of how you remember the past, that live in the stories about yourself and others. And and you're lost, and you don't know you're lost. You, you, you don't know that you're lost. And so that second stage of development from the child to the me, the separate self, is a miracle. It's a form of transformation, but it's not the end. Then we have to be able to develop a, a part of ourselves it's aware enough to be able to know I have sensations, but I'm more than my sensations. I have feelings and I have emotions, but I'm more than all my emotions. I have thoughts and beliefs about me and you and everything else, but I'm more than those thoughts of belief. I can be in thoughts and beliefs. I can be in relationship with them. And I'm going to make my life a practice. Now, when it comes to fear, there are two things we have to know. That most fear is created by our thinking. So ask yourself, What am I telling myself right now about me or about someone else or something else that's making me afraid? What part of the past am I dipping into 
to justify this fear, to you know, to to say, oh yes, because of this that happened in the past, now I understand why I'm afraid. You know, maybe it was about my father and my mother, or my father's alcoholism, or my mother's depression, or maybe it was this, or maybe it was that, or maybe it was how I was bullied when I was in school. Maybe, maybe, all the ways that we can use the past to justify what we're reacting to in the present. But then you're just a victim of the past. And then you don't have a future, but only a chasing after something that's better than the past and trying not to have it be worse than the past. So what do I do? I get up. This is over 45 years, 50 years, I started with mindfulness, what people call mindfulness today, but meditation. Started with a mantra. Then eventually I just learned to sit quietly in myself. I probably discovered Vipassana on my own, but then I did do several of Vipassana retreats over the years, certainly in the early years where I sat for eight, ten hours a day, just sitting in the body, watching the breath. And that taught me how to be in the body, first of all, which, if it's not active, starts to get irritated and ache and cramp and this and that, and taught me how to have a very quiet body. Um, but then it's, I, I began to realize that, well, all my suffering is coming from the mind. As I said, the mandala model eventually grew out of all of that. But what do you do? I, I get up in the morning and I sing. I start with songs that I love that activate my heart, that activate a sense of gratitude, joy in me. And then I use chants that I've made up. <clears throat> I use my own words, create my own words. I teach this to people all over the world. It turns out that music is distributed between the left brain and the right brain, the left cortex and the right brain cortex evenly. And so when you have a stroke that causes you, the left side that causes you to not be able to talk, you can rehabilitate speaking gradually through music. So music integrates the left and right brain. Yoga and breathing practices integrate what we call the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches of the so-called autonomic nervous system. That is the, the building active branch and the regenerative healing recuperative branches. So we have to learn, that's what yoga is about, to, to integrate, to balance the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. Singing balances left brain and right brain. There are now studies in medicine uh, functional medicine that showed that if you take two groups of people with the same kind of cancer, with the same kind of chemotherapy radiation protocol, and with the same lifestyle support, but you add regular daily singing to one group, that group has 70% less likelihood of recurrence. And, in this, and, and there were even been people that went into permanent remission at least in the time that the study was published, whereas nobody wow. in the other group did. So these are basic things that we human beings have always known. Spiritual, spirituality is you went to church and you sang. You know, you went, you, your, your indigenous group got together and played drums and they chanted and they sang. You know, so singing. And what about poetry? All of the great spiritual teachers are poetic speak in parable and poetic imagery, poetic metaphor. The great mystics are scientists like Einstein on the one side, or the, or, and, but almost every great philosopher ends up realizing that you have to, well, the, the, the 20th century philosophers, late 19th and into 20th century philosophers, realized you have to basically express the deepest philosophies in poetry. And so 
I teach people to write poetry. And I don't care. It, you don't become a poet. You would be amazed at the extraordinary, beautiful poetry I have heard from hundreds of people over the years. And you know what happens? They're scared. They're afraid. They're anxious. They're angry before they write the poem. And they, and they just let the poem start from their fear or their anger or their hope or their whatever it is that's real in them in the moment. And 15, 20 minutes later, they're in expansiveness, quietness, gratitude, simply because the process of poetry, the process likewise with singing, or the process with downhill skiing, or the process of, of ex the experience of surfing, that they shift your level of consciousness, or at least they shift your state of consciousness. And if you just, if yeah. you know how to shift your state frequently, eventually you'll be able to start stabilizing yourself closer and closer to the center of the mandala where we talk about the now or the self and, and the basic state that we know there, which is love. Well, you know, I, the, the practices that you choose to do, uh, these are great suggestions for my listeners. Some of you may choose to do poetry. You may choose to sing. You may choose to do meditation, go for a walk in the park, anything that connects the two hemispheres of the brain is I think where uh, Richard is talking about. And, you know, I want to talk about that for a second because you say the ability to stay present requires muscular attention. The effort to develop the ability initially resembles willpower. It does take intention and determination, you say, but an ability to tender curiosity and attentiveness to whatever we are exper experiencing eventually takes the place of willpower. So, is this what you're referring to, as you say in the book, the spiritual muscle? Because everything you're talking about right now is about developing spiritual muscle. Um, so speak with our listeners about the development of the spiritual muscle. Well, exactly. Nothing gets developed, spiritual muscle or any, or any other muscle. If, if you want to develop your muscles on your body, you have to have a vision of yourself as, as strong and powerful. And may, maybe it goes it, because it's oriented to athletics because you're a football player, but maybe it's because you want to be a bodybuilder. So first you have to have a vision of yourself. You have to have some purpose. And I would say the deepest vision and what distinguishes a truly wise human being is, the, is what you consecrate your life to. What, in the end, you feel gives the deepest meaning to your life. And from that point, you say, okay, what muscle do I want to develop? So for example, for me, I realized that love has been choosing me. It shows me in the emergency room when I was still a doctor, when a voice said to me, you have nothing to share with this man except love. And instead of sedating him with, with a medication and keeping him under observation, I put, I gave the medication back to the nurse and I just told the man, I, all I want to do is touch you so softly as if I were in terrible pain and this is how I'd want to be touched. And next thing I knew, I was blazing hot. I mean, this energy was pouring through me that I'd never known about before. I was 27 or 28 years old and the man falls asleep and half an hour later when he wakes up, he's not in pain and we can discharge him. I, know, I had no idea something like that was real. And, and and that was the beginning. I'm 28 years old and I'm saying, what, that, that was not my voice. What is the love that voice is talking about? And now I'm 73 years old and I have given my life over to that love, which again and again in my life, 
I see has been choosing me. And so, because my life is consecrated, not just to love, but to, to what does it mean to love love within myself when there's fear, what, when, in myself when there's anger, but between me and others, and for example, most importantly, in my marriage, we're together to love love with each other. We, that's the vows we took with each other. And so then what do I need to do to build my muscle? I have to look at what closes my heart. What closes our hearts? Well, judgments. Thoughts that create separation within us, that separation is projected outside of us. Then we become, we, it starts in our mind, and then we're separate from that husband, or we're separate from that wife, or we're separate from that friend, or we're separate from that fellow worker, just because something in our minds started dividing us. And if I don't want to be divided so that my heart closes, then I have to see what I'm believing that closes my heart. I have to see the nature of my self-involvement and self-justification and self-importance. Me, 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 me. Because me cannot love. Me can have sex. Me can have wonderful sex. Me can give birth to children. Me can say, I'll love you as long as you love me back. I'll do this and this and this and this for you. And then you'll, I'll, you'll love me. And then you'll do this and this and this for me. And I'll love you back. But that's all conditional, transactional love. And it falls apart. People fall in love. And then they tell themselves thousands of stories for a few years later, and the next thing they know, they're in hateful divorces. It's all in the mind. So the muscle comes because you've chosen something worthy of you in your life. Have you chosen to be a leader in business that lives in vulnerability and heart and transparency and understands that there are certain kinds of circumstances in the way economics is practiced in our world, the way business is practiced in our world? But we don't have to be the worst of that. We can be the best of that. Are you in a marriage where you don't, where you want to know what, that you want to get out, you want to, you don't want to die until you've known again and again profound interest, intimacy and built love in yourself as deeply as you can? Well, then you build the muscle. How did I close my heart? What was I believing? What feeling was I afraid to have a soft relationship with a tender, gentle relationship with fear, a tender, gentle relationship with deep unsafety, you know, with burning, burning terror? Literally, eventually you will be able to face anything without having your heart closed. Well, it is uh, an opening. It's about the mandala of being, as you say. It's about a radical aliveness. It's about our ability to come out. It's about our abilities to face the how those emotions are controlling us and not to be so reactive, um, uh, to stay in a state of love. And, you know, we've covered a lot of ground with the listeners uh, in the last 40 minutes or so. And I want to kind of wrap the interview up with Richard with anything in particular that you'd like to leave this audience with that would be an important takeaway uh, from either of the books and this part of the interview that we've talked about in the Mandala of Being. Because I think, you know, any kind of takeaway that they can walk away from our uh, time together to actually apply to their lives and make a practical application is always really quite valuable. So anything you want to leave them with? Yes, and in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to leave with two things. 
And my wife has been the one who has expressed it the most clearly of any person I've known. And, and, and it's what she calls, and now we call together, the 100% rule and the 200% rule. So the 100% rule is, I am 100% responsible for my reactions. In other words, if I trigger something in my wife, she doesn't attack and blame me. She realizes, oh, as my wife says, hallelujah, I have just been triggered. Now it's my work to figure out why. And then she goes in a process in herself, and likewise, if it's the other way around, and I've been triggered by my own thinking, by something that... it, it, it oh, I'm so sorry, someone's beeping through. Okay, the 100% rule, nobody is causing you to react. Nobody is causing you to get angry. It's your choice. And so you're 100% responsible. And then the 200% rule, People are in different states. When we get activated, when we're afraid, when we're reactive, sometimes there's one person in the in, in in the relationship who's a little more centered, just a little more, a little more grounded. If you're a little more centered, if you're a little more grounded, you have 200% responsibility for bringing that difficult situation back to some sort of state of quietness or some sort of state of harmony. I would say this, finally, if you want to know what intelligence is, intelligence is the capacity in any given moment to help support or create the greatest degree of harmony. That is not just emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence. That is using everything you can possibly know about yourself and anyone else. Um, I would say that your insight there about creating harmony uh, in every relationship that you have to not hold malice or grudge or even against yourself. You know, it's your relationship with yourself. Everything we've talked about here is about how the mind is controlling and how you're not letting go to actually be this authentic self. We talk about the authentic self. We talk about being vulnerable authentic, open, understanding, compassionate. And in every step you take with the mandala of being, with everything that Richard teaches, he is teaching you ideas, techniques, processes, ways in which you can access that so much more quickly. And I think, as he said, hey, he was a 28-year-old physician and, and found this healing ability um, it, it altered the course of his life forever where he dedicated to doing this work. And I think for my listeners, it's important to understand that you're not putting yourself out there as a guru. You're putting yourself out there as the teacher, the teacher that can come and make a difference in your life. And I'm going to encourage all the listeners uh, to please go up to Richard's website. He's doing some programs um, with Catherine, and these programs are available uh, for you to get involved in. He also does coaching and mentoring work. And if any of you out there listening are really looking for a very good uh, Sherpa, Sherpa to take you up the mountain, to actually <laughs> help you along the way, Richard would be one of those Sherpas that I would highly recommend that uh, that you listen to. And go write him an email. I mean, it, it's open here. You can get in touch with he or Catherine right through the website. It's richardmoss.com. Richard, it's been a pleasure 
having you on Inside Personal Growth, speaking about the mandala of being, throwing a lot of your philosophy and background into this. Um, and also for those of you, we'll put a link to the black butterfly an invitation to radical aliveness, which was one of his prior books, put links to other books that he's got as well. But the one book in particular that I think would make a huge difference, um, is inside out and a mandala of being those inside, two books inside out healing, inside out, inside healing. out healing. Uh, we will have that one link. Uh, up at on our uh, blog entry as well. Those two books in particular are timeless, uh, can be read anytime and reread and highlight the pages and uh, go out and reach out to Richard. Richard, it's always been a, a wonder having you on this show. Uh, blessings to you and Catherine and the work that you're doing. Thank you for supporting me and the program. And thanks for taking the time today to impart some of your wisdom uh, with our listeners. Thank you, Greg. You, good questions, good good guidance, and, and hopefully people will just have some sparks go off inside of themselves because it really starts in our hearts. It does. <laughs>